Hi, and welcome back to the Laudable Pursuit Podcast, contemplative and transformative education for those seeking Masonic light. I'm Jason Marshall. I'm Matt Anthony. And I'm Nate Warren. And tonight, tonight's special. We have got a guy with us that needs no introduction, but since you haven't met him, I will introduce him. He's a friend, a mentor, and a beloved brother, and possibly one of the most plugged-in guys I have ever met in my life. I'd like to welcome Chuck Dunning to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. It's a pleasure to be here. Jason, Matt, always enjoy being with you guys and having a chat or spending some time in other ways, and so it's uh, it's good to be here. Well, great. Um, for the people that haven't met you or heard your lore, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about you? Well, I, I think I'll start by t- by saying that I'm probably not as, as uh, plugged in and grand as, as you make it sound, but um, the... I think um, as a Freemason, the things about me that most people would be interested in are um, my particular interests. Uh, I came into Freemasonry with a background um, in esoteric studies and contemplative practice, and that's what I had hoped to find in Freemasonry. I I thought that I would be uh, at least running a chance of discovering um, an active society of people with similar interests and activities to mine. And so I did. I joined the the fraternity um, in 1988 uh, in search of that. And um, I didn't really find it. Um, I found found a lot of wonderful things, things, other things that I did expect and that I was hoping for. Uh, you know, I found good fellowship. I found an interest in being good men and in learning and growing as good men. Um, but um, I didn't find uh, other men who practiced this contemplative stuff. And um, and so uh, my particular interests in Freemasonry have been about encouraging other Freemasons to recognize that. Um, our ritual means something when it talks about being a contemplative mason and uh, and that there's real value in contemplative practice as a mason and um, and and I've wanted to make sure that other masons could experience some of the things that that I had been experiencing through my practice yeah and so that's that's the way I came to know you um, a little later in the game than these other guys but was through the Scottish Rite and the Academy of Reflection that we have in the Guthrie Valley in Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. I think from the moment I met you, I knew that you were you were one of us chickens. <laughs> and, and I and I and I and I will say that uh, Chuck, he's kind of like maybe maybe an uncle to the uh, Laudable Pursuit Project because I kind of came up with the idea for this from a contemplative retreat through the uh, Academy of Reflection that Chuck was leading. So uh, whether he knew it or not, he's a big influence on this entire project. Well, thanks, Jason. That's, that is nice to know. I did, didn't know that. Yes. 
it's kind of odd that I came up with a uh, web-based project at a silent meditation retreat with no uh, electronics allowed, but it is what it is. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing about this contemplative stuff is that it inspires each of us in our own unique ways. I mean, there are a lot of things that we can get in common from contemplative practice, but each one of us is going to respond to that differently. And uh, and you've certainly certainly done it in your own way. So is Nate. So is Matt. Uh, all of you guys. I mean, it's it's obvious that um, that this stuff makes a difference in your lives. Yeah, and Chuck, let's just go ahead and jump right in. Um, when it comes to contemplative masonry or contemplative practices within masonry or among brothers, um, it seems real easy or maybe common or not intentionally, but it just happens that there draws this distinction between those who are um, seeking more in that area and those who are not. And there can come this, um, this gap between them. And that's, that's one of the things that you strive to, to kind of overcome. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, well, for one thing, it's important for me to, to make clear that the contemplative practice doesn't necessarily make me a better Mason than someone else. It makes me a better Mason than I would otherwise be. And, um, and so I think that's the way that I try to explain, um, you know, where contemplative practice kind of stands in terms of, of, of uh, you know, whether a Mason should do it or not, or whether you're less of a Mason if you don't do it. Uh, I, I think a lot of times we, uh, uh, we get this idea that if something is working for me and it's helping me, and, um, and we can justify it by pointing towards the ritual and what the ritual says, that then that you know gives us a, a reason to point our fingers at others and say that they're less of a mason because they're not doing what we're doing and I just don't believe that. I think the obligation is what makes us a mason. That's that's what our ritual says and um, and how each of us serves that obligation is different. But the the uh, the extent to which a mason serves his obligation in his own way is to me. Uh, the measure of him as a Mason. So, um, keeping that in mind, I am absolutely certain that there is plenty of benefit for anybody who takes up contemplative practice. And and you don't have to have a college degree. You don't have to you don't have to have any education at all, really, other than having someone help you learn how to practice contemplative methods. Um, and e- even that can be as simple as, as, you know, reading the instructions in a manual or a guidebook or something like that. But, um, but anybody can benefit from this. And it's something that anybody can do. You're already innately possessed with all of the working tools that you need in order to be a contemplative. And uh, to some degree, we all are already. It's just actually making the decision to kind of intentionally go about the, the process. And, um, and, and I just welcome anybody who thinks that there might be something there to, to try it. 
Okay, so <clears throat> since we're throwing this word around a lot, contemplative, contemplative man, mason, etc., what do you mean by contemplative? Let's just lay down some basic building blocks. What are contemplative practices, and how do they apply to masonry? Yeah, that's a really great question, and, and I think it is a, it's definitely a starting place because, uh, for one thing, the word contemplation is used differently um, in different situations and settings. Um, if, you, um, if you look at it from a Masonic point of view, and what our ritual says and what the glossaries in our monitors say is that contemplation is about, um, is about a reverent state of mind. And it is about focusing one's awareness and one's attention, in short, one's consciousness, on a particular thing. Um, with the uh, with the intention of becoming as aware of that as possible. Now that might be that thing that we focus on might be as our ritual tells us the designs in nature. Um, it might be a symbol, a particular symbol. It might be our own consciousness, and so the practice of, of being conscious of one's own mind and how it works um, is one of the most uh, important forms of, of contemplation and contemplative practice. In some traditions, the word contemplation actually refers to a specific kind of inner work, a specific kind of, of meditative state. Um, that's particularly true in the Christian mystic tradition where contemplation is actually uh, a state of silence in which one is not really having a whole lot of thoughts but is immediately present with the Holy Spirit. Um, in other traditions it means different things but in general use we're talking about um, something that's roughly equivalent to the practice of meditation. What are I don't know if you're comfortable getting into this, what is your background uh, in contemplative practice? How did you start off? Sure, I, I'm happy to talk about that. Um, well, in one sense, I mean, it's, it's just very simple. I mean, I, I grew up um, in, a, in a church going home, and prayer was part of our, our life. And so anybody who practices prayer is actually practicing a form of contemplation. Um, but it became a serious practice for me. Um, I mean, I had kind of dabbled with it, experimented with it as a teenager and so on. And, um, uh, but... I was fortunate enough uh, when I was in my 20s, I was working um, in mental health and going to college at the same time, uh, trying to do a bachelor's degree in psychology on my way towards a, a counseling degree. And, um, and one of my mentors in mental health was a counselor, a licensed professional counselor, who taught a a, a method of meditation that um, is called progressive relaxation. And, and so he taught me how to practice progressive relaxation and then how to use it uh, with the people that I served um, in my job. And so that was my first real practice in terms of like an actual discipline that I pursued and that I learned well enough to teach others. And then um, in my college studies, I was fortunate enough to, um, to meet a philosophy professor. My minor was philosophy, and one of my professors was a teacher of meditation. Uh, his name is John Miller. 
John Miller III. He's currently a professor in Florida. And, um, and so I started studying with him. He, he taught um, meditation courses outside of the college classes, the philosophy classes that he taught. And so I took everything that I could with him and became a personal student of his for a good while. Um, and then from there, I just, uh, you know, learned as much as I could. I went to workshops of different kinds. I found people who specialized in different kinds of meditation and studied with them for long periods of time and, um, and, uh, and continued to use it in my work in mental health. Eventually I became licensed um, as a therapist and, uh, and, and used it in my work with some of my clients who were interested and open to that possibility and uh, and then also as I became more involved in Freemasonry and found other brothers who were more interested in that then that became one of the ways that uh, that I was able to continue to practice and teach um, in in a new venue. What exactly is progressive relaxation? Is that breath focused or breath-based? Um, progressive relaxation is actually it's very uh, and it involves the, uh, the, the really forceful tense, tensing of different groups of muscles in your body and then relaxing them and of course there is some breath work that goes with that and the idea is that um, by going from really tense to really relaxed uh, you can feel the shift in your body, and as you feel that difference, you actually kind of allow yourself to amplify the process of relaxation. And so you do this. Um, generally, it's done from your feet all the way up gradually through the different muscle groups all the way up into your head. And, uh, and then by the time you have reached your head, your, you know, your body is, is pretty relaxed. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, and, uh, and so there's this thing that happens by tensing and relaxing that way. You're also increasing the blood flow in every muscle group in your body. And so the oxygen transfer is really good after doing that. Blood pressure drops, heart rate drops. People tend to become really relaxed, and I can't tell you how many people I've had fall asleep uh, on me after. after <laughs> Sounds like an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, actually, um, for for some people, <laughs> it might be. <laughs> I, I've never used the uh, tensing of the muscles, but I've done the uh, what I what I was taught, you know, the body scan, where usually you start actually at the top of your head. And work down to your feet, and uh, I actually have an audio recording of that, and I don't think I can hardly ever make it to the end without falling asleep myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, you know, one of my favorite methods of being able to relax like that progressively without doing all the tensing and everything, but something that has kind of become habitual for me, and I've heard you talk about it in, in one of your other podcasts, is, you know, becoming aware of the pull of gravity. And anybody who does group meditation with me knows that I typically start off by having people pay attention to the pull of gravity and allow the, the feeling of gravity to kind of pull away the tension in their muscles because we have a lot of tension that we use in resisting gravity and, 
and and for other reasons we that we're carrying around in our body but if we stop resisting gravity that automatically puts us in tune with how we have been tensing our bodies and so it makes it a lot easier then to to get into the process of letting go of that tension Chuck you said when you first joined the fraternity in 88 yeah um, that you, you didn't really find um, what you were necessarily looking for had you you'd already begun these practices on your own prior to that or what was the, the timeline on that yeah I had been practicing for um, you know I uh, the uh, progressive relaxation I started working with progressive relaxation in about 1985 1986 yeah. somewhere around there so yeah so I had been doing uh, some sort of formal contemplative practice routinely for for a few years by the time that I became a Mason. So there's a, um, I, I haven't experienced it luckily, but I've heard of a lot of people talk about it where when they're minded toward these practices, especially in Masonry that, um, there, there's two schools of thought or there's a schism sometimes. And, and, um, they, they have to, I guess, kind of keep quiet about it or, or, yeah. you know what I mean? That kind of thing. And, uh, I know you've been on both sides or are, uh, bridging the gap on that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that, what that looked like in the beginning, what it looks like now? Has it changed all that much? Yeah. Well, let me just answer that last question first. We are in a completely different Masonic world from 1988. Um, and, and you know, and a big part of that is because of the internet. When I joined the fraternity in 1988, you know, the internet was, was uh, I mean, it existed at that point, but not in any way like we understand it now. And, um, you know, I mean, even most people who had computers at that time were just using them as word processors, and, and maybe people were doing a little bit of email, but uh, there was nothing really going on in, in, until the 90s that... Um, allowed the kind of connection that people kind of take for granted today. And so, uh, yeah, so when I joined the fraternity, that didn't exist. And, and I immediately started, you know, I, I just started asking questions, talking to my older brothers in, in the Blue Lodge and, and talking to my older brothers in the Scottish Rite. I wrote letters all around the country and even around the world. Uh, to Masonic authors and authorities of different kind in a search for other Masons who were interested in what I was interested in. And, um, uh, you know, I had, uh, I had communication even with Manley P. Hall's personal secretary in like 1989, 1990, somewhere around there, and told him what I was interested in. And he said he was unaware of any real... Uh, focused interest along those lines anywhere within the fraternity. And, uh, you know, and of course I knew at that time that there was also the, uh, the Rosicrucian Society that is associated with Freemasonry. Uh, and, um, you know, we have one here in the United States and there's one in Scotland and, and one in England and in other countries and then we have all these different colleges around around the country. But um, my understanding was that at that time that um, 
even they were not really doing contemplative work. What they were doing was uh, research and ritual. And uh, by research, I mean they were reading books and writing papers. And, um, and that's good. People need to do that. That's valuable work, but it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. And, um, and I experienced some resistance, too, as I was going through that process and asking those questions. I mean, it became clear to me that, um, you know, the, the things that I was asking about and the things that I wanted to talk about were considered to be weird fringe ideas and um, and and if I wanted to uh, if I wanted to have the respect of my brethren I better keep my mouth shut <laughs> and uh, and so um, and and so that's basically what happened and fortunately enough at that time I, I was also uh, in communication with uh, another spiritual teacher one of my major spiritual teachers and um, and he challenged me at that point. You know, he he said, "Look, I can tell that you're at this crossroads where your experience as a Freemason is either going to be um, the 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 ordinary experience of of going into uh, positions of responsibility and becoming an officer and and doing that." Um, and in the meantime, losing touch with your contemplative practice because you're going to be putting all your time and energy into that, or you're going to really give your time and energy more to the contemplative stuff. And um, uh, I suppose that's not necessary for everybody to make that choice, but it was for me. Um, he, he knew me well enough, and I knew that he was right. Um, that I had to make that choice, and so for a good long while, I I did not really um, I, I wasn't really active in in the traditional sense as a Freemason. I, I I didn't go to lodge. I didn't go to Scottish Rite functions after the first few years, and instead I I, I read Masonic books. Um, I had conversations with the few Masons that I had made contact with. That had similar interests to mine, and uh, and I practiced contemplation uh, and meditative uh, methods in connection with uh, masonry and uh, and some of the philosophical traditions that influence masonry, particularly through the Scottish Rite. And I did that for um, well, if you if you start from the very beginning of 1988 until. Uh, 2000, so 12 years before I made any attempt to really kind of start coming out into uh, into uh, more public uh, Masonic experience again, and, and that's about the time that I got involved with the Guthrie Scottish Rite. And uh, <clears throat> it's it's interesting, you know, that that schism or that resistance where you, if you talk about it, you lose the respect of your peers and all that. Um, in some places, that's still true. And in some places, it's completely not that. Like where Matt just moved to, from what he tells us, it's like the wonderland of contempl uh, contemplative practice. Yeah, Matt, I, I know some of those guys up there <laughs> in Portland, and, and you're, uh, you're in a good place up there, man. You are among your own kind. I definitely am. I'm happy for you, brother. Thanks, brother. 
Can you elaborate, Matt, a little bit on uh, <laughs> no. some of the differences? I was throwing you a bone, Matt. You got to talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot of experience up here yet because I've, I've only been to, I think, three meetings at Esoterica. But that's the general sense that I get when I try to explain things, uh, how things operate in Oklahoma. Um, I get a lot of puzzled looks as to uh, brothers not realizing how how secret you have to be about some things. Not necessarily secret, just not as open as they are up here. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that, um, that I kind of wanted to hit on with Chuck while I have him is why? Why is there a division... Why does it have to be secret? Why are people ostracized or, or whatever you want to call it? Is it at our own doing? Is it a um, old-fashioned uh, religious holdover? What do you think the deal is? And that's, uh, you can speculate if you want. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think Mason's ought to speculate. Um, <laughs> Nicely done. Thank you. Well, you just laid it right out there for me. I, <laughs> what am I going to do? Um, so... So I think the answer to your question is, you know, there are a number of factors involved, and, and, and my gosh, I mean, we could, you know, we could probably do an entire series of podcasts on, on this topic. Yeah, that's what we're doing. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> you, you just haven't been told about it yet. Man, I feel sorry for your listeners. <laughs> um, some of your listeners may be familiar with um, the, the work of Abraham Maslow, who was a, a, um, a psychologist who came up with what's called the hierarchy of needs. And, and he said, you know, our very most basic needs um, as living creatures are to survive and to, to eat. Um, and, and then as, as we get those needs met, well, then we also have this need to belong. We, we have this need to be part of, of a tribe or a family. Um, to, to, to have a group of others around us. I mean, that, that helps us survive, and it helps us also evolve, not only as a species, but to, to grow, develop, mature as individuals. Well, one of the things that comes with that is a pressure to conform and to not be so different that other members of the group don't identify you as one of them. And so we go through our lives kind of teeter-tottering to a certain degree between being the unique individual that we are and also trying to belong to a group, to, to fit in with a group uh, where we can feel safe, where we can feel valued, where we can feel supported in then beginning to address even higher needs. And, um, and so I think what happens a lot of times when these schisms develop or when um, grand lodges or grand masters um, issue kind of oppressive edicts or, or, or things along those lines, is what we're seeing is that desire to conform being externalized and then projected into other people. And so now it's not just about me conforming, but about me forcing other people to conform and, and, and not only to, um, to conform to the group, but to conform to what I think the group is supposed to be. And so then there again you see this, 
dynamic between the individual being powerful and trying to express self and you know and this desire to conform and what some people do is they really get into this thing of expressing their power as an individual for the purpose of enforcing conformity in the sake of harmony yes <laughs> for, forced harmony Right. I mean, you know, we talk a lot about peace, harmony, and unity, right? Those are the ideal conditions of a Masonic Lodge. And it's awful hard, I think, for most of us to think about what peace, harmony, and unity looks like if we're not all walking, talking, and dressing the same. And, um, and so, you know, and so that is a great question that we as Masons ought to be wrestling with, is is how can we have peace, harmony, and unity while also be by being true to our tradition, to what we are taught, like in, in the constitutions of Freemasonry, Anderson's constitutions, of, you know, that, that this is supposed to be a place where men who would otherwise not uh, be friends can come together and be friends. That their religious differences won't keep them apart, their political differences won't keep them apart, and lots of other differences that have to do with uh, with beliefs um, and with attitudes rather than with really deep core values will not keep us apart. And that means we can have peace, harmony, and unity. We can each be the unique individual that we are, expressing ourselves in a way that is meaningful to us, um, and and all still be together. But that's that's a hard thing for a lot of us to understand because we don't see it much in the outside world, the profane world, as we as we call it in our fraternity. Well, well, one of the things to the. Uh path of individuation or the contemplative path goes against conformity I mean at its core that it's about you know kind of finding your own way your own self and that might go against hierarchy or power structures that are in place I know that I, I was reading some young uh, over the past weekend and he said that you know, a lot of societies, society is about conforming to different ideals. You have to fit a role. And as you start undertaking a, you know, path of individuation, you start breaking out of those, those molds. And that's why in a lot of societies, you know, the contemplative, the shaman, you know, is kind of on the outskirts of society. We, we need you certain times. We need you to kind of be a contact between the material and the spiritual worlds. And we need you to you know work out problems for us. But we also don't want you living in the center of town. We have to kind of the hermits out, out, out on the out on the uh, wilderness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that that's very well said. It, it takes a um, a certain amount of um, psychological development and, and maturation uh, to get to that place. And sometimes that comes naturally with age, and sometimes you can get there a little earlier uh, with open mindedness. Um, and I know that's one of your big things is um is going that route. Yeah, I think it's very important. I mean, as soon as we make up our minds that um we don't need to learn anymore, that we don't need to question things anymore, that we don't need to try new things, uh new perspectives, new points of view. As soon as we do that, we start 
we, we start turning our mind from something fluid and alive and, and blossoming like a flower into something that is crystallizing and becoming concrete and dead. And, um, and, and, and I think we all know what this looks like. You know, the, the person who absolutely will not listen to reason at all because they've made up their mind that they're only going to think about something in this particular way because that's the way they were taught or because, you know, they're afraid they'll, they'll, uh, they'll be judged by someone, whatever their particular reason is. And, and, and at that point, they start, interestingly enough, they start becoming... Um, less capable of really being a part of society. They, you know, a living part of society who contributes something. Um, you know, there's, a, there's this real, in, in, in Texas ritual, there's this, there's this really interesting teaching about the, the, the beehive and about bees um, in, in our ritual. And, and one of the things that it says is that we should never be a drone who does not add to um, the good of society. And, and I think that that's, you know, what a lot of people are trying to do in, in this world is they're trying to figure out a way to be a drone to, because it feels safer. And, uh, and, and I think we need to, you know, we need to understand that that's a big part of the motivation is that people, everybody wants to feel safe. Well, one of the things we talk about in the fraternity as well are the different stages of life, youth, manhood, and old age. Yes. And you were talking about making up your mind and, you know, not changing your mind. Well, that's spiritual atrophy, really. And part of the, you know, old age or the wise old man archetype is also giving back. But in order to really get, be able to give back, you have to be flexible and you have to still be in the world and explore new ideas. You can't just say, this is how it is, this is how it's always been, this is my opinions. It's, hey, look, here's my experiences and they've changed and they're adapting, but here's you know 60 years worth of wisdom behind it. Not necessarily that this is how I've always thought and it's never changed. Yeah, I, I love that, you know, what came to mind for me, the, the imagery that came to mind as you were telling that is, you know, that, that what we want from our elders are not people who assert blind authority that we must conform to in specific ways so that we're all basically copies of each other. What we want from them is to be like gardeners who nurture each one of us as a unique flower, who care for each one of us as a unique flower, and make sure that we get all the nutrients and the proper environment that we need in order to blossom in the way that, that you know that that only each of us can do. When we talk about that, we've we've got these three gorgeous windows at the temple, the Guthrie Temple. That depict those three stages, and uh, man, I love those windows. I, I sit there and look at them uh, for hours sometimes. Uh, yeah, so that, that's what always springs to mind right there. I can see it vividly. Yeah, and I love the way that those windows are not only the three ages of 
of the human being, but they also show seasons of nature. Right. You know, so you've got a springtime setting for the boy. For the man, you've got a summer setting, and then for the old man, you've got a winter setting. And it's just so beautiful that, you know, that the things that we're talking about, what we're hoping for, and and and, and what it is that we're trying to accomplish in our lives is all reflected in the processes of nature and, and our, our rituals just, I mean particularly in the fellow craft degree, it just really makes it clear to us that that's where we should be looking if we really want to develop our wisdom is to, to look at those beautiful processes in nature and to meditate upon those, to contemplate them and, and consider what lessons they have to teach us. I'm glad you said that. This is a great segue to my next thing that I want to talk to you about. Um, our, our, our fraternity, we're always, you know, focused on ourselves, our brothers, manhood, manliness, men, 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 men. But when we, when we talk about nature, it's always, you know, mother nature, it's a feminine thing. Yes. And I've, I've heard you talk quite a bit about the, uh, feminine archetypes, energies, things like that, as far as related to, um, wisdom. So do you want to touch on that or do you want to skip for later? No, I think we can go ahead and touch on that. I mean, for one thing, it connects with what Jason was saying earlier about Jung. Carl Jung uh, was really clear that in order for a man to become truly individuated, he had to integrate uh, the feminine aspects of his own psyche. He had to make peace with those. He had to learn how to cooperate with those, to value them, and to become one with them, and to listen to them. Um, the, the archetype in a man's being of his very soul, the anima, Latin for soul, um, is feminine. Anima is feminine. And Jung said that she would appear to um, each man in his dreams as a female character. And so anybody who's done Jungian dream work um, knows that this tends to be true. And so the question is, how do we, as, as a fraternity, uh, who, in our case, because we're mainstream Masons, is exclusively male, how do we encounter and integrate the feminine aspects of our own being um, so that we can become more of what a truly mature and well-developed, integrated, individuated male should be, or could be. Um, and, and I think the fraternity throws a lot of hints at us. I mean, let's start with this. We call ourselves the widow's sons. And, um, and for anybody who thinks about that, uh, I think it's a really good question worth some real study and some real contemplation about who the widow is um, and and why is she a widow and what is the significance of that symbolically, allegorically. So there's that. And then if you look at, at in the entered apprentice degree and you look at the images of the virtues, the four cardinal virtues and the three theological virtues, those Anthropomorphic images are all feminine, 
And um, and I think that that is is particularly particularly important because we're taught that those virtues are things that we're actually supposed to practice. We're supposed to make those parts of our lives. They're not just something to think about. They're not just something to be um, you know uh, to be entertained by. We're actually supposed to make them parts of our lives. And um, and so yes, I mean we know that that this is kind of traditional symbolism. It goes beyond masonry. That that in the Western European uh, cultures, that it, it was common to symbolize things like um, like virtues and uh, and and other things in feminine form. Uh, but I think that there's a reason for that. I think you know when you live in a patriarchal society where the masculine is always up front, that the feminine energies and the feminine archetypes are going to find their way into our art and into our symbolism as a way to be integrated um, into the whole. And so our job as Freemasons then, if we really are wanting to become more whole, fully integrated males, is to recognize that, yeah, okay, these things aren't exclusively male. That temperance, for example, how can that be something that is exclusively male? I mean, there's no reason we should think of it as such. In fact, each one of us can look in, into our own lives and think about each of those, those cardinal virtues and theological virtues, and I would imagine that each one of us can identify some woman who exemplifies each of those virtues in some particular way that you know that serves as a role model for us. Um, you know, for for those of us who have had any kind of connection with the Eastern Star, I know that you know Freemasons and 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 our sisters in the Eastern Star, we like to poke fun at each other and and uh, and and grab about each other from time to time, good naturedly and sometimes not so good naturedly. But the fact is. That, um, that there is there's some meaning in having those interactions and, and coming to see the special beauties that, uh, that can be exemplified in a, in, in a woman and recognize that those don't have to be exclusive to women, that, that we as men can have them too. Um, and, and I know I'm kind of going on here for a while, and, and maybe you'll chop this up a little bit in editing. But one of the no. things that this <laughs> one of the things that this leads to is uh, is is, for example, um, emotional awareness. Now, we typically in the Western world, um, more so in times past than in in more recent times have thought of emotions as being the particular specialty and domain of women. Um, but psychology has increasingly shown us that emotional intelligence is absolutely crucial to all of us. And, and that if any of us is going to function at our fullest possible uh, level, then we have to learn how to make the most of our emotional intelligence, our ability to recognize emotions, to understand them when we see them, to 
to manage them within our own being and then also to use emotion effectively in working with others to, to help motivate people, to inspire people, to help people calm down when that's necessary. All of that is what we mean by emotional intelligence. Okay. You guys want to chit chat? Let me go handle the emergency. Don't talk about me though. Use your emotional intelligence. <laughs> that's like zero. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting, if, if you think of the, uh, you know, cardinal virtues and feminine form as an archetype, how they kind of bubble up within the fraternity and that's, you know, very young in that, you know, we have our external world or our, um, um, personal unconscious or our personal consciousness, but the, the unconscious will always kind of bubble up in unique ways and, and, and keep, but you can try to suppress them and say they're not there, but it's always going to be popping their head up over and over and over again. So maybe in a way the fraternity, when we say no, it's very masculine, we just can't help but have feminine archetypes popping up all over the place. No matter how much you try to say, no, it's masculine, masculine only in nature. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, this is this is the deal: is that the harder you push towards one extreme, uh, the more likely the other extreme is to express itself in some way that you're not quite as aware of and not managing quite directly, quite consciously. And um, you know, I mean, this is this is symbolized um, in in the symbol of the Tao, right? In the Yin Yang symbol where you've got the two big swooshes, one black and one white, and then you've got a little dot in the white one of black and a little dot in the black one of white to show that when one force of, of opposing forces of, of, of polar opposites is asserting itself the most strongly, the other one will find a way to manifest, and it cannot be stopped. And, um, and this is something that, that Jung reflected in, in his own understanding, which you just summarized very nicely. It, you know, it will come through in our dreams. It will come through in slips of the tongue. It will come through in lots of ways, lots of ways. Well, sometimes I even see people in their writing, you know, they refer to Freemasonry almost as a feminine, <laughs> you know, very feminine way that she, her. Yeah. Yeah, it's traditional to refer to the fraternity as her. Yeah. And our lodges. You know, we talk about our mother lodge. So what would be your idea, or one idea rather, of the feminine uh, interjection into Freemasonry? Well, I, you know, I think other than the virtues, the, the, the four cardinal and three theological virtues, um, there's the widow. But then I think, I mean... Let's just talk about the lodge room itself. Um, the lodge room is a womb, if you think about it. It is, it is a womb. The candidate enters it um, to start a new life. I mean, he's like, he's like he's coming in blind, right? And, and, uh, and, and so like a baby... He's circulating around within this safe, protective space, this nurturing space that is, you know, is is feeding him in ways, is providing him with with um, with protection, is providing him with uh, companionship, and uh, and then at some point, he 
you know, he reaches the 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 moment where he's brought to light, and then when he leaves that womb, he walks into the world outside as a Freemason. He's born from that womb into the world as a Freemason, and um, and so. So there's one way that every one of us experiences the feminine in Freemasonry. Um, I think another important way that we all experience the feminine in Freemasonry is, um, well, just a particular symbol. Let me, let me talk about a particular symbol. And, and that is the, we refer to her as the maiden at the broken column. You know, and that's associated with the, the master's degree, and it's supposed to be a reminder to us of, of the loss of, of our hero, our ancient grandmaster, Hiram Abiff. And, and she's standing there with Father Time, which is, you know, uh, a derivation of actually uh, the god Saturn, uh, the, the great reaper, the, the deity of death. Who is, um, according to tradition, you know, uh, unraveling the ringlets of her hair as she holds this urn, and um, and in sometimes some some people think that that urn is supposed to contain the ashes of our grandmaster Hiram Biff. However, if you if you become familiar with some of the stories about the way the body of Hiram Biff actually would have been disposed of, he never would have been cremated. What what that urn actually holds, according to the tradition of, of the fifth degree in Scottish Rite, is the heart um, of the embalmed uh, Grandmaster Hiram Abiff. And so there she is, this maiden with, with death at her back, and by maiden we mean virgin, with death at her back, holding the heart of our grandmaster in her hands. Now that tells us a lot. It suggests a lot about our hearts as Freemasons, about what we're supposed to be doing with our hearts. We're supposed to be giving our hearts to something that we would tend to think of as more feminine than masculine. I think that one way of answering the question about what that more feminine than masculine thing is, I think one way of answering that is simply with the word love. Um, I, I think that, and this goes back to the, the thing about emotional, uh, uh, emotional energies, that, that, that we have tended to associate emotional energies with the feminine. And so we do kind of the same thing with love because we want to think of love in emotional terms. Love is much, much more than emotional. But that's the way we experience it most powerfully is through emotion. And so if we're going to be the, of all of the craft, the Master Mason is the one who wields the trowel, right? To spread the cement of brotherly love. If we're going to be doing that, then we have to get in touch with love as fully and as completely as possible. And one of the ways that we do that is by identifying in some way with that maiden holding the heart 
of the Grandmaster Hiram of If in her hands. Now it's interesting, I want to make a segue here, because one of the things that I am doing in 2016 is I'm going to be uh, publishing a book, well it's actually a revised and expanded edition of a book that I published anonymously in 2000, an ebook that I did online through mastermason.com called Contemplative Masonry. And, and one of the things that I have added in that book is um, an exercise of inner work, a contemplative practice that has to do with love. And part of that practice is imagining yourself holding in your hands the heart of somebody that you want to experience and express love for. And, and so I, I think that this image, this traditional image that Freemasonry gives us of the maiden at the broken column shows us a way to integrate this feminine emotional experience of love into our lives as men so that we can be greater servants of love in our lives. He just blew my Carl mind. <laughs> <laughs> so when do you think in 2016 the book will be ready? Yeah, I, I, I mean, my hope is that it'll be ready sometime in January, but I would think probably by the end of February. Um, right now I'm waiting on the forward to be written. I've got some reviewers that I want to take a look at it. And then once I have the forward and some comments from reviewers, uh, the final draft will go off to the publisher and uh, it shouldn't be long after that. I'm quite certain that the Laudable Pursuit would love to uh, review an advanced copy. And, <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we could probably work that deal. <laughs> yeah, I think we can make that happen. I, I know people. <laughs> do, do you plan to sell it via how? Um, well, well, we'll have it both in hard copy and ebook. Um, I don't don't have an idea on price right now. I want it to be reasonable. Um, I, you know, also one of the things that that I want to say is is that um, I I don't want to really want to make any money off of this book. Sure. Um, so once I recover my initial expenses, everything else is is going to go to the uh, Temple Restoration and Maintenance Fund for the Guthrie Scottish Rite Temple. Whoa. Oh, that's great. This is uh, that's breaking great. news here? Was this the first time anybody's hearing about this? Yeah, I've, I've not told anybody else that. Not even the uh, guy that managed that fund? Uh, no, not even the general secretary in the Valley of Guthrie knows that. Let's not tell him. Let's see if he listens to the podcast. <laughs> he says he does. Let's see if he does. Yeah, okay, yeah. And if he doesn't, it'll go someplace else. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Maybe the laudable pursuit. How about yeah, that? and then we'll cut it to the fund. <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. I'm really excited. Um, I'm not even sure. I came across the original uh I'm not sure how. I think it was on a thumb drive where you get, you know, the thousands of documents all in one dump kind of thing. And um, it it grabbed me immediately. And um, and then almost as immediate, uh, I knew you wrote it just in the way that it was written, the way you talk. So I'm not sure if anybody else put that together. But uh, just some of the words that you use all the time and the way that you speak, it was um, it was you easy. 
Well, I, I, I'm, uh, thank you for recognizing my voice, and also, you know, I appreciate the fact that you actually read it. Uh. <laughs> and, and, and let me let me say though, and that's not me saying that I'm I'm smart or um, uh, intuitive or anything like that. The only reason I uh, thought that was because the voice of the writer was incredibly tender and urging loving kindness. And that's you. Uh, well, thank you, brother. Yeah, I, thank you so much. That means a lot to me because, you know, it's I'm an intellectual guy. It's really easy for me to talk about all of the psychology and symbolism and these different traditions that feed into Freemasonry and how they affect our symbolism and our understandings of the symbolism and and you know, and, and I enjoy talking about all of those things, but when it comes right down to it, none of that stuff is meaningful if it doesn't help any of us find a way to be more loving. To me, that's what all of this is really about. And uh, and so, I mean, you know, there's a reason that charity is the uppermost rung of the entered apprentice mason's ladder. There's a reason that the trowel is the last tool given. To the Master Mason in our Blue Lodge experience. Um, I know that's not true in all jurisdictions, but you know, to me, that reason is to emphasize that that love is the supreme virtue, and everything else, all the other virtues, are ideally expressions of love in some form or another that temperance is a way of being loving, prudence is a way of being loving, uh, justice is a way of being loving. All of those things are, are just ways of making us more loving human beings. Well, we've said it before, too, that, you know, Freemasonry is supposed to be transformative. You're supposed to be a more loving person. So you can be a 33rd or a you know past grandmaster, but if you're still a jerk, you haven't learned anything about the fraternity, <laughs> or at least you have you haven't applied anything from the fraternity. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, I uh, I'm going to connect with my own religious background here, and, and I think about the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians. It's First Corinthians chapter thirteen, where he talks about love, and he says, you know. Uh, I, I'm not going to quote it exactly, but he says, I can, I can work miracles, I can speak in tongues, I can do all kinds of amazing things, but if I don't have love, it, none of it means anything. And, um, and I think that that's absolutely true. Uh, it's just, when, when I see Freemasons who are, are, are struggling with things like conformity and and trying to make other Masons think the way they do or hold the beliefs that they hold, uh, I, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt and think that that's their way of being loving. That's them expressing love in the best way that they can. Um, but I also cannot help but believe that if we were each thinking more deeply about love, if we were contemplating love, if we were saturating ourselves in the spirit of love, that things would look different. So you wrote me a, um, an email or a message the other day. 
you asked me a question. I think it was rhetorical, so I'm going to ask you the same question. I think that's what you meant. Uh, and actually, I think you've already answered it, but let's see if, if we can expand. It's how can we experience peace, harmony, and unity while also being inclusive, welcoming, and celebrating diversity of many kinds? Is it yeah. simply love? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's the easy answer. That's the short answer. Uh, but living it becomes pretty complicated. At least it seems to, right? Because a lot of us have been taught that differences are that some differences are not only something to be suspicious of, not only something to be feared, but there's something to be actively resisted. And that in order to be a good person, and in order to be a person who is right with deity, right with God as as a person may understand it, there are certain things that they cannot abide by. And, and so that then becomes the justification for some of our brothers um, not being as inclusive as they might be. Um, other times it's, you know, it's not quite that noble. Other times it's just simply about prejudice and bigotry. And, and often prejudice and bigotry wraps itself up in religious language uh, or even patriotic language to, to make itself sound noble, but once you get through those uh, the, the surface layer, what you find really behind it all is a person who's just unwilling to be tolerant of something that they don't understand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, my response is is that you know that that even the these these people the the bigots and the and the, and the prejudicial people even these people and perhaps mostly these people need our active love uh, because they're not going to they're not going to learn how to love in another way unless they experience it themselves. All right, show's over, folks. Thanks. what would you say to people and i've kind of unfortunately seen this refrain quite a bit on facebook that you know love and toleration that's a bunch of hippie bs and that you know freemasonry has foundational principles that are you know rooted in conservative christianity and if you don't like it you can get out Uh uh-huh that's a good question um, well, you know, let me just acknowledge that there's no doubt that Freemasonry has Christian roots, you know. Um, but it's also very clear that uh, pretty quickly after Freemasonry came onto the public scene in the early 1700s, um, that uh, Masons decided that it wasn't going to be exclusively Christian. Um, and um, and they did so because they recognized that the principles that they were talking about must be extended to people that believe differently, that think differently. If we're going to have a world that that reflects the ideals of masonry, we talk about being builders of a temple in society not just the temple of our future lives after death, you know. That's an important part of, of who we are. We, we acknowledge the immortality of the soul and whatever 
that means for each of us as an individual human being. Um, but our object as Masons isn't simply to prepare for our life after death, whatever that might be. Our job as Masons is to transform the world that we live in uh, into a more peaceful, harmonious, and unified world. And uh, oh, I can already hear the anti-Masonic conspiracy theorists jumping all over that statement. They don't. They don't listen to us. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, good. Now I can talk about the real secrets. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, actually, so, actually, nobody listens to us. <laughs> I do. Oh, well, go. I'm nobody. So. <laughs> no. Uh, that's cool. that's cool. <laughs> Um, so, so, you know, so getting back to the point is, is that, um, that, that we're supposed to be making a difference among all people, not just the people who look like us, talk like us, who wear what we wear, who hold the same beliefs that we hold. We're supposed to be bringing together humanity as a temple in which all the parts fit together nicely. It, it, it's good. It's good to hear from you, Chuck. Um, really good. I feel extremely uh, privileged to have you on and have you to ourselves. Um, usually, when I see you, there's a lot of people wanting to talk to you, or there's it's a different kind of setting. So this this is great. I hope we can do this again. My pleasure, brother. Um, you know, one of the things I, 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 there's something I want to I want to address, and maybe you'll find a way to work this in. I don't know, but there's something I, I really want to go back to before we wrap this up, and and that's this idea of love. I know that you know I've been talking about it in one way or another now for several minutes, but if the lodge room is not a place where brothers can come together and be honest about their feelings with each other, who can trust each other to be open and to be caring with each other regardless of our differences and, and our disagreements, if we cannot bear our souls to each other in a lodge room, then we are missing out on the most beautiful blessing that Freemasonry has to offer any of us. And, and so if, if, there's, if there's one thing that I would ask any Mason to do, it would be find a way to make your presence in the fraternity uh, more of a presence of love and acceptance so that your brothers know that if there's no other place in the world where they can be who they are and be loved for it, they can do it with you. One thing I, I know that whenever we started Veritas, most of us had read your ebook, and that was one of the big things when we started Veritas was to foster that kind of an environment, a very close intimate environment that not only facilitated personal growth, but also sharing with one another and having the close bonds. And we're very different people. I mean, we're not a homogenous group at all. I mean, Veritas has a wide range of 
professional backgrounds and religious backgrounds. And, you know, I kind of blew some people's minds sometimes when I said, well, we have a pagan, you know, junior warden and we have a Buddhist chaplain. <laughs> and then we have several uh, people that went to, a, you know, divinity school as well. And it just blows their mind that this could even exist harmoniously. But I think if you put love at the center, it is harmonious and it's actually a very powerful experience for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Love always challenges us to break down barriers. And that, you know, that doesn't mean anything goes. It doesn't mean that you tolerate everything. But it breaks down barriers that don't need to really exist for us to be able to live well with each other. And you're doing that a lot. <clears throat> um, you know, with with the uh, with the Academy of Reflection and the Scottish Rite, mm. that's uh, it's starting to uh, change. It's starting to grow quickly, actually. Um, <clears throat> and then coming on this podcast is is quite a bit far or further down the road than publishing an anonymous contemplative book. Um, there's there's a lot of progress and and barriers that are being overcome and it's important because uh not everybody at this moment is equipped to do it but uh right now you're the guy and i hope you realize that that no i mean for real it's it's you right now at this moment well um i i really appreciate what you're saying i mean i'm touched by it I also know that there are so many other brothers who completely understand what we're talking about and are living it every day. And you and I and the other guys here, Jason and Matt, we all know Masons who exemplify what it means to be a genuinely loving human being and to put love first. Uh, I mean, my goodness, Brother Jim Tresner. Let's start there. What an amazingly beautiful man and such a huge heart to go with that enormous encyclopedic mind of his. And, and I mean, we could just go on and on. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm holding myself back from naming others because, you know, I don't want to leave people out. Sure. But thank you. Thank you so much. I mean... I, I see the love in your heart too, mate. Well, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Are you prepared for what's about to happen? <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and by what's about to happen, I'm going to give out your email address. It's probably but, not too hard to find anyways. No, well, in all seriousness, um, you know, some of the things we've talked about, uh, Hopefully, um, whoever's listening has people in mind that they can talk to about these things. But I would imagine that there's going to be many people who want to ask questions or clarifications or have someone expound on a certain point. And I hesitate to even bring it up, but would you be opposed if, you know, if we set up an email just for that? Yeah, sure. Um, no, I'm, I'm absolutely fine with, with, um, connecting with individuals or lodges or Scottish Rite Valleys that are interested in any of this stuff, whether it's the contemplative practice, whether it's talking about 
the psychology within Freemasonry, whether it's talking about the centrality of love or the divine feminine uh, in Freemasonry, any of those things, I'm, I'm more than happy to speak with, with anybody who's interested in that. Um, let's, uh, let's just set up an email. We'll just do Chuck, C-H-U-C-K, at thelaudablepursuit.com. That sounds fine. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, one of the reasons that I decided to go public as the author of Contemplative Masonry is because I just really think that the time is right for more of us who have these interests and have these these understandings of of, of Freemasonry to to be upfront about it and to uh, and to come forward uh, to 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 be known and to offer our support. Um, you know, that's one of the things that we say that we will do as Masons is that we will support our brothers, and so and so that's what I want to do. Well, now that you have a official laudable pursuit uh, email, we're going to be plugging you some more, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and and there's dues. Yeah, there's dues. <laughs> oh, there are dues. Of course there are. Yeah. Do I get a pen? No, no pens, just dues. No pens. <laughs> no, when the book comes out, we'd love to have you back on to talk more about it. Yeah, I, I would love to do that. And you know, one of the things that that just occurred to me, this is of course your business, but one of the things that just occurred to me is and I don't I don't have any idea on the technical side about what this would entail, but if you wanted to do um, you know, like a live show where people could connect and do we could do question and answer or something like that, I'd be I'd we be can, We can do it through this format, can we not? Matt? Yeah, that's yeah. what I just realized tonight. We can we can open it open it up and do an actual live broadcast and like you said, have questions. I'll have to clean my office, but okay. We also need to have you on again just to talk about the Academy of Reflection. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I've actually got four episodes for you. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Those be the dues. Oh, I see. Now I well, so you you guys normally do your intro with what you're drinking and what you're smoking, and I haven't heard any of that tonight. I, I'm drinking the uh, Colorado Bulldog. Oh, okay. He's going to vomit. As usual. I just had, uh, what did I have? Oh, Lefroig. I'm drinking a Ninkasi, Ninkasi Total Domination, an IPA from up here. Lame. I'm just kidding. I've never heard of that. Matt's in the Domination. Matt's so hipster, he drinks beer you've never heard of. <laughs> and let me guess, you're drinking Texas whiskey. No, no. no I, I don't know that you'll ever guess this one. Uh, Probably not now. <laughs> I had one guess. Chuck Dunning Special Reserve. <laughs> kind of. Uh, this, this was actually uh, two years ago. My wife bought me the, a bottle of this as our 25th wedding anniversary present. Um, it's a bottle of... Talisker, twenty-five-year-old Isle of Skye, single malt, nice. and wow. uh, yeah, it's cask strength, and uh, it's it's a special treat that I broke out just for you guys. Wow. Well, thank you. <clears throat> hmm. I don't know what to say to that, other than uh, cheers. Yeah. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> and you know, I don't know if you understood uh, that you were participating in the laudable pursuit drinking game that uh <laughs> do we need to disclose this jason or yeah every time we say young or campbell you have to take a drink so nate and i nate and i were taking the drinks along 
Oh, yeah. okay. Well, I think I was pretty close if I wasn't right on. I was, I was yeah. pretty close. Usually I'm the one that makes everybody drink, so I'm glad that uh, you were playing along <laughs> and uh, dip, dipping out the uh, drinks as well. Yeah. Well, thank you, Chuck. I've enjoyed yeah. it a lot, and I've, been, I've really enjoyed seeing all your faces, and, and particularly Matt Anthony's, because I, I don't get a chance to see it as much anymore. No doubt. Yeah. It's nice He's to see you guys. It's really nice to see you guys, you guys. He's now in the ethereal realm. No <laughs> kidding. No kidding. He's, 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 he's gone moved on. beyond. He's moved beyond. Higher planes. Yes. He bought a flannel shirt and a unicycle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Did you get a unicycle? Not yet. I haven't ordered the unicycle yet. But I do have a, a growing collection of flannel shirts. Did you get a tweed driving cap? Actually, I did. Awesome. <laughs> 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 all right thanks again truck for doing this well it's my pleasure guys I, I you know i really appreciate all of your efforts and uh and you know I, and i know that you've got some listeners out there and i and i thank them for for tuning in no doubt because we are literally making it up as we go <laughs> thanks truck thank you matt all right we'll see you tomorrow on the next podcast <laughs> All right, guys. All right. Thanks, Chuck. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. As always, any show ideas, thoughts, or comments can be shared with us at podcast at com. Thanks for listening. Bye.